So now I know that some of y'all are kind of looking it over this morning, trying to decide, oh, do I like this song? Do I not like this song? Not real sure about it. Let me tell you what I think of this morning when I think about this song, okay? I think about an opportunity for me to lift up Christ and tell him thank you for all of the things that you've done in my life. You have overcome sickness. You've overcome disease. You have paid the price for my sin. I'm telling you what, that needs to make you shout this morning. And we're not going to shout because, then, you know, we're not Pentecostals. But, no. but I'm just saying that's a reason to celebrate this morning. So I want to sing that chorus again. If you'll rewind that slide. Oh, hero of heaven. Oh, hero of heaven. You conquer and pray. You free every captive and break every chain.
good. You can clap for that. Has God done great things this morning? Amen. I think if we took the time to go all around the room, everybody could say something that we're grateful for this morning. I have a million things. It's easy to focus on the bad stuff, but there's a whole lot of good stuff too, and I am so grateful this morning that he continues to be faithful, even when people aren't, even when life isn't. God is faithful. Amen. Well, I want to do this hymn this morning, too, for you guys. This is probably one of my favorite hymns of all time, and you'll know it. So let's sing this one together, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's a good reminder this morning, too, of where our attention needs to be.
Lord, we turn to you this morning. We turn our eyes to you. We know that everything we need, you have. You sustain us. You keep us. You hold us. And we are in your righteous right hand. And we are so grateful for that this morning. I thank you for being here in the midst of us, for inhabiting the praises of your people. And whether it's a praise of our full heart or a sacrifice of praise, God, I'm thankful that either way you show up in the midst of that. We need you today, Lord Jesus. We are desperate for you. Minister to the hearts and the lives of the people that are here. Thank you for letting us be in your house this morning. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, have a seat there. It's good to see you this morning. And um, hey, hey, listen, listen, listen. Somebody told me there's a game today at 630. Uh, does anybody even care? Go Bucks! Is there? That's true. You I do care. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> so, and, and you have the upper hand. Tampa. Tampa. So one person in the room cares. Um, but here's the, here's the thing, and you know, being from Cincinnati, I get it. It is immensely frustrating being a Cincinnati fan of any sport, and it has been a while since we've had that excitement. But how many of you are going to watch the game intentionally, like you're watching it for the game and you actually care about the result? Okay, so so let's let's swap that for just a minute and let's pretend just for a second it's a team you care about. I don't know who it is. It's going to be a wide variety of teams that you might actually have interest in, but how many of you would, have, would look at this game this evening with excitement if you knew it was one of your teams? Okay, so it would be a little bit different of a perspective. Here's the problem. Um, how many of you woke up this morning excited to be here today? Okay, good, good. I, wasn't gonna, I didn't ask for a raise of hands, but since you already did, um, we're going to put people on the spot. We're going to put people on the spot, and that wasn't the intention at all. Point being, folks, listen. Um, we, we joke about, about being excited in church, but it's concerning when we get excited about a game and not a, not a time being together. And it's, a, it's concerning when we're not around God's word and we're not excited about it. And so, I, listen, I'm glad you're here, and, and I hope that you are as well. I'm glad that there's a football game this evening, and some of you are going to get together, and that's all well and good. But, hey, as you sing and as you worship, there's nothing wrong with getting excited about what's going on. Uh, and about what God has done for you, whatever those great things you just sang about, there is nothing wrong with being excited about that stuff. So don't feel like you have to suppress that desire this morning to, to, to act a particular way. I don't think that's biblical. If you're excited about something, you show it. And so I'm, I am thankful that you have chosen to worship with us here at Ashland. And I know there's many online. We're glad to have them with us, even though they are not here in person. Let me say this. If you are visiting with us, um, there's one of two things I would ask you to do. Either on the pew in front of you, um, there's a connect card, or on the ends of the pew, or in the bulletin, there's a QR code. Either way, would you please just take a moment and give us uh, your, your contact information? We'd love just to have a record of your attendance. And uh, again, we promise not to send a bunch of stuff that you're not going to be interested in, but it's simply so that we can know that you are here. And uh, again, we are thankful that you're here, and we hope that this morning's service will be encouraging to you. Uh, and exciting to you um, for being together today with God's people in his house and around his word, okay? Let's continue to worship. Why don't you stand back up with us if you want, if you're able. You know, the Bible says the joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. And I, I, don't, I just am, I am in great need of a joyful heart this morning. I'm in great need of good medicine. Anybody else with me today? Yeah, some of you aren't into raising your hands. That's fine. That's okay. But I think all of us, if we were honest, and this is church, sometimes church is one of the most dishonest places in the world. Ooh. 
Did I just say that? But if we're all honest today, we all need a dose of God's joy in his love. Amen. I need it, and I know you do too, even if you didn't raise your hand. So let's rest in the fact. Go ahead. We can start. Let's this is a good promise. Who am I that the highest king would Child of God, yes, I. 
seated. Woo. Oh my goodness, my face there. All right, go to Hebrews chapter 10 with me, if you will. Hebrews chapter 10, I want to remind you while you turn there um, that I hope that you are able to grab a bulletin. And uh, there's a lot going on. The, the Valentine's banquet is this Friday night. It will be in the gym, just so you know. And there is still time to get involved in that. If you would like to be a part of it, just sign up um, either online or um, at the Connect Center on your way out. And then we have a great crowd coming to that. Looking forward to it a lot. And I hope that you are as well. Hebrews chapter 10. I want to really just cover two verses with us this, this morning. Um, if you've ever studied the book of Hebrews, you know that it is a challenging book. Uh, it is um, difficult. There are some passages that are difficult to understand. We know Hebrews chapter 11 is relatively easy. It's been kind of called the, the, the hall of faith, if you will. It kind of highlights the different uh, biblical characters that, that we have studied for so many years. But one thing, if we were to kind of create a moniker or a um, theme for the book of Hebrews, it would simply be this, that Jesus is superior. And what he does, the, the writer of the, the book of Hebrews goes through with that topic in mind and tries to help us understand the superiority of Christ. He looks at Christ compared to Old Testament prophets. He looks at Christ compared to Moses. He looks at Christ and compares them to the angels. However, when we get to chapter number 10, um, our text where we're going to be this morning, we hop into a study that discusses Jesus' superiority over the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, when you look at the first 11 verses of Hebrews 10, um, don't get overwhelmed, okay? Stay with me. It, it's, it's a tough, deep topic to start to look at, especially as it relates to all of the different sacrifices. Uh, I'll give you a warning, We're not, or maybe an encouragement. We're not going to go through all of them this morning, okay? I'm not going to try to unfold for you all of the different sacrifices that went on. However, before we can get to our text, we have to understand why it is that the writer of Hebrews is landing us in verse 24 and verse 25. And so in the first 11 verses, the writer is trying to help us understand Jesus is superior above all else. But when you compare it to the sacrificial system, we learn that that system is immensely insufficient. And so what happens is this, there is an argument that is presented to help us understand what the purpose of the law is. Why did God give us a, a set of regulations and a set of standards? And the first reason I would remind you is this, Jesus is superior over the Old Testament sacrificial system, but we have laws in place in God's Word to help us understand that keeping the law, though, doesn't save us. It is insufficient to provide salvation. And I would tell you this, the law was never meant to save any soul. It was not the purpose why, why, by which he gave us. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul reminds us that the purpose of the law was simply to reveal to us that we are a weak and sinful people. We have needs above that which we can meet on our own. And see, the thing about the law is the law can't fix us. The law only condemns us. And so I don't, I don't know if you've ever looked at the law this way, but, um, and I'm not going to, again, some of you were earlier ready to raise your hand. This is not one of those times, okay? Not looking for a raise of hand. Have you ever been driving down the road, though, and, and you're cruising, probably distracted by whatever is going on around you, maybe a conversation with somebody in the car, 
and it seems like you come up over a ridge or you make a turn, and uh, there's an officer sitting there with his gun out. You ever been there? How many of you have ever felt that feeling of your heart dropping down to your ankles because you know when you see that officer there and you glimpse down at your speedometer, you realize you are breaking the law. You get that feeling, and, and then if you're like me, you slam on the brakes and everybody else does with you, and you pass the officer, and you look in your rearview mirror because you're waiting to see what he's going to do. Is he going to pop out behind me? Listen, full transparency, this happened to me on 471 on the way here this morning. Right on that, that wild interchange where people are coming on and that you can shoot all the way left right after you get north of downtown to, to go, go whatever that road is. I don't know what the road is. There was a car that was sitting there underneath the bridge. Now, I don't know if you travel 471 much, but it, it can be kind of compared to the Audubon. It really, I don't understand why that stretch of road seems like there's never law enforcement on it and people drive extremely fast. And, and I was going with the flow of traffic on a Sunday morning, meaning I'm the only one there. <laughs> there, was, there was no one else out with me. And I came around the corner and there was a car sitting right underneath the bridge, kind of in its shadow. And my natural reaction before I even realized what kind of car it is, wham, got to slam on the brakes and slow down because I probably not doing as I ought. Passed the car only to realize it wasn't an officer. Now, you can, re you can relate with that. Have you ever been pulled over by an officer, though, and, and, <laughs> and when you get off to the side of the road and, and you know what the next thing is, is going to be, right? License and registration, and, uh, and you, you provide that to them, and oftentimes the, Tim left, I saw him leave, so it's good that he's out of here for this example. But if Tim was to pull you over, or Xavier, or one of these other officers, and they say, do you know why I pulled you over today? Ugh. Then you're faced with a moral dilemma, right? Um, what, what is your answer to that? Because you don't want the ticket, you don't want the, the citation, you don't need the points or the expense. But have you ever been pulled over, and, and, and they look at you and they say, do you, do you know why I pulled you over today? And you look up at them, no sir, no ma'am. And, and uh, they say, well, do you know how fast you were going when I pulled you over? Maybe your answer in all honesty was no. But the officer then replies, and so you were driving 45 miles an hour on a road with a speed limit of 45. I pulled you over today to simply congratulate you for obeying the laws of the road. Have you ever had that happen? I, I don't know that I've ever heard a story that was like that because that is not a demonstration of the purpose of the law. The law can only condemn you. It cannot provide a fix. If you get pulled over for speeding, you're pulling, being pulled over was simply to remind you that you are a, a weak and an unwise driver who disobeyed the laws of the land. You're going way too fast or whatever it might be. See, this is why God gives us the law in his word. We know the officer's job is to pull us over and to correct us because we did not uphold the law. The law's job is to prove to us that we are sinners, but the law's purpose was never to save us. Listen, we know the New Testament teaches us that if we are guilty in one, we're guilty of them all. And so the first insufficiency of the sacrificial system is just that. It is insufficient because it cannot save. Well, the law also cannot forgive sins. And this is where things get a little irritating. Those under the Old Testament system could and did sacrifice often. Yet in those sacrifices, they did not forgive 
or even cleansed from their sins. If you notice the choice of the wording used time and time again in the Old Testament, the purpose of the sacrificial system was to temporarily cover. It was more like a Band-Aid fix. Look at chapter 10, verse number 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So even in the sacrifices of that which was valuable, it was impossible for those sacrifices to take away the sins. As a matter of fact, those sacrifices were simply a covering. So here's what happens. Every time we sacrifice, we are reminded that we have no good means to find forgiveness. Now listen, that's a really exciting thought, isn't it? That I am consistently sacrificing something of great value only to be reminded that I, in this sacrifice, might be covering my sins for a short amount of time, but it is not forgiveness that I am finding. Verse number one says that the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those things can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, that's a big word in verse one, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So it was a constant reminder of the temporary insufficiency of the system. It could not save, it couldn't even forgive sins. Well, look down at verse number 11, same chapter, Hebrews 10. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which, what's that last phrase in verse number 11? Which can never take away sins. The blood was consistently and constantly flowing from the altar of the sacrifice. Ministers were constantly requiring those sacrifices and performing those sacrifices with no major endgame except just a shadow. There's something that's coming. There's, there's a source of that shadow, and we're just getting a, a, just a little sneak peek. It could never take away sins. Every time you needed a sacrifice, you had to come to the temple, see the priest, and sacrifice. Remember, once per year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. There he would make atonement for that year's sins until the next year where it happened once again. Some sacrifices were constantly offered, but no permanent solution was provided yet. Just temporary relief. So all of this to say, the system was insufficient, but remember the theme of the book of Hebrews. Where there might be insufficiency, the proof of this is, the point of this is, to remind us that Christ is superior to all of this. The shadow in verse number one that was referenced was, was an indicator that there is going to be a sacrifice that will come later on down the road. And what's he doing? He is pointing to the sacrifice that Christ would make on behalf of all mankind. It was pointing to something much, much better. So then the writer of Hebrews goes on to prove to us the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, I want to hop around a little bit. So look at verse 5 through 7 with me real quick. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he being a reference to Christ, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offerings you wouldn't, you wouldst not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. 
Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it's written to do thy will, O God, above when he said, sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings, offerings unto sin, and wouldest not, neither has pleasure therein, um, which are offered by the law. Now, when you think about this statement referring to Christ, we can, we can kind of boil it all down to this idea of you were never happy with all of the sacrifices. Again, it was necessary. It provided a, a beautiful picture of what Christ was going to do but God never found pleasure in the offering of those sacrifices. It was temporary, it was incomplete, and it was insufficient. God never desired sacrifice and offering, but instead he prepared a body. He prepared a, a divine one. He never delighted in burnt offerings or sin offerings, and it was written in the prophecies about Christ that he will come to do the will of God and that is to be that body, to be that sacrifice that, that God had prepared and God, God had pointed to with the shadow of the Old Testament law. Does that make sense? And so in verse number 10, this is, this is an amazing verse. If you, if you need a verse that deals with the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ, Hebrews 10.10 10 is the one that you need to write down. If anybody ever questions you about why it is that Christ could die for everyone in one, one attempt, Hebrews 10.10 is the text. Where, by the which will we are sanctified, we are set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Those last three words are important. Once and what? That's four words. Once and for all. He has satisfied the insufficiency of the Old Testament system in his one sacrifice. There doesn't need to be any more sacrifices. This one that Christ performed was a permanent fix. It was a permanent sacrifice. Finally, the temporary sacrificial system can go away because it has been satisfied by Christ forever. No more need for animals to lose their lives. No more need for the shedding of blood constantly. This is what we refer to in church as the completed work of Christ. See, when Jesus finished his work on the cross, remember, he proclaimed three important words. It is what? Say it. It is finished. What was finished? The redemption of mankind, the sacrifice for mankind, the need for salvation by any other means is now completed because Christ has offered himself. And not just that, what is he pronouncing? There is no more need for a sacrificial system. It's finished. The requirement of the shedding of blood is no longer because of what Christ did for us. Jesus died. This is so theologically and, and, and personally important for us to understand. Jesus died once and for all. No longer does he hang on a cross. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father ascending there to that position after his resurrection. Now look, look at verse 14. Okay, stay with me in the history lesson. This is important. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Again, that word one attaches you back to verse number 10. Once and for all, verse 14, one offering he has perfected forever permanence them that are sanctified. Verse number 18, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Again, verse 10, verse 14, verse 18. What is the point? The point is that Christ was superior to the killing of animals 
for sacrifices. So where the Old Testament system was insufficient, Jesus was both sufficient and superior. It's announcement of death of the Old Testament sacrifices. It's over. And an announcement of a, look in verse number 19, a new and living way. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, the flesh. So in the the expenditure of the life of Christ, we now have a new and living way to come before God, and that is through what Christ did for us on the cross. No longer do you have to approach a priest No longer do you have to have a different mediator to bridge the gap between you and God. You have the ability through what Christ did for you to come straight before him and into his presence yourself. Hey, listen, when you just sang about great things, we cannot communicate to you anything greater than Christ has done for you than by dying on the cross, satisfying the need for a payment for sin, and granting you access to God Because of what Christ did, there is no greater thing that Christ has ever done for you and I. He has satisfied the sacrificial system one time in a singular death, and he has granted us access by the tearing down of the veil, that separation between man and the Holy of Holies. And in verse 19 and 20, it was a representation of the body of Christ that was broken for you and for I. Listen to me very careful again. You're going to see why all of this ties in in just a moment. He provided for us salvation. He provided for us forgiveness. He provides for us access to God. And we no longer need a priest. We have the ability to be our own priest to come before God whenever and wherever we want. Can I tell you, when we sing about the love of Christ, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The Old Testament survey that we just went through, okay, class is over. And we arrive at our one another challenge in Hebrews chapter 10. Remember, contextually, this is a proof of the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's so important. So look at verse 24 with me. Verse number 24, and let us consider one another. There's the the one another statement for the morning. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. So, understanding what Christ has done for us, understanding the Old Testament system is insufficient, it proved a purpose. It pointed forward to a sacrifice that only Christ can perform for you and I. And understanding while that is insufficient and understanding on this side that Christ is superior, what do we do about that? What is the encouragement? What what is the point here? Well, the point is in verse number 24 and verse 25 is to consider one another. We have been loved through what Christ did for us to do something in love for one another. What is it? Let us consider. Well, what does it mean to consider one another? Now, if I asked you right now, we kind of did it at the outset. Are you considering watching a football game today? Maybe you're still bouncing back and forth. Well, if I have nothing else to do, I might turn it on. Or maybe the commercials might be worthwhile this year. I, I don't know. I don't know where you stand on the NFL in general. But maybe you are trying to figure out yourself what it is that you're going to do about a game and about your involvement in watching it. 
Is that what the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage us to do? Let us consider each other. Well, maybe, maybe I'll go to church. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll dive into it. Listen, that is not the idea of considering. It's not a thought process. The idea of considering is to stir each other up. It is to have such a relationship with each other that we sharpen each other. It's what Proverbs says, iron sharpeneth iron. The idea of considering is to, to provoke, to, to, um, um, to mobilize, to encourage, to, to push. It's the same idea in Proverbs 27, 17 that I just quoted you. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So when, when the, the text says, let us consider, here, here's the thought, let us stir each other up. So here, listen. So when we were just singing a moment ago, part of the point of having energy in our singing is that, listen, when we sing and we worship, we're encouraging each other. We are stirring each other up. Maybe, maybe you're not one of those that likes to sing really loud, and that's fine. Nobody's expecting that. But maybe somebody else's engagement in worship encourages you to sing. Or maybe just to focus on a lyric that would be biblically founded. See, part of coming together as a church is the, the point of encouraging each other and stirring each other up. To provoke each other. To consider each other. To do what? Well, what does the rest of that verse say? That we consider one another to, to love, there's our word again, and to good works. It's to encourage each other. It's to provoke each other to get to that end. So think about this. We are sharpening each other. We are provoking each other um, for the purpose of pushing each other towards a specific direction. Now, we're going to wear out the football analogies today, and I don't know why that is, <laughs> but have you ever watched in a game, and maybe you guys can relate with this, in a particular play where the running, running back takes the ball and maybe he hits a, a stalemate, what happens oftentimes when they know they have to get that extra yard? Sometimes the, the other teammates will come behind him and do what? They'll push him. They'll shove him a little bit. So let's pretend for just a second it's like, you know, fourth and one at the goal line, right? And the game is on the line, and, and your team is getting ready to, to attempt a score. And, and so they, they, they hand the ball off. The running back hits the goal line but meets a brick wall of defenders. And all of the other teammates come behind him, and they shove him forward trying to push him into the goal, trying to get him where he needs to go. That is the idea of provoking each other. It is one person pushing another person to the common goal of Christ-likeness, and in this instance, to love and to good works. Listen, when you come to church, you should feel pushed to the direction of love and good works. If you don't, we're missing the point of coming to church. It is, it is maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe myself, maybe somebody else that you just have a conversation with pushing you in the direction of Christ-likeness that looks like love and good works. Do you see the picture there? That's considering. It is one person pushing another person towards a common goal of Christ-likeness and love and good works. So stay, keep that in your mind. Keep that football analogy in your mind. If you've watched football, you've seen the action, and that's the idea. So here is a strange-sounding statement. You ready? It's time to stop going to church. Does that make any sense? Have you ever heard a pastor tell you to stop going to church? Um, may that be a first. It's time to stop going to church for real, though. 
I know a lot of people come to church because they think it's the answer to all of life's problems. That somehow if we just go to church, then our marriage will fall back into place and, and everything will work out and we'll ride off into the sunset on horseback. Maybe if we put our teens in the youth group, they won't, they won't get engaged in, in activities that will, that will harm them down the road. So maybe, maybe a, a youth ministry can just fix your a teen and so we go to church. I don't know where we come up with this idea that the church can fix everything, and so we go, and that's our intention. Listen, can I tell you real quickly, while those might be byproducts of the ministry of the church, can I tell you, for some of us in this room right now, or some of us online, it is time to stop going to church. Emphasis on the word going. Why? Because, again, the point of coming together and provoking each other is not... The Scripture doesn't say in verse number 24, let us consider, let us provoke one another unto going to church and then going home. There is an attitude of love and there is a behavior of works that is attached to the provocation of the church. It is easy to go to church. But it is not what we are being called to do. Now we're going to get to verse number 25 in just a second and that's why we're making the connection of provocation and good works to going to church because the writer of hebrews does in verse number 25 however listen get this in your head it's time to stop going to church and it's time to get involved in what god is doing through his local church what is it it's time to love there's that word again we've talked about it so many weeks in a row now and to good works what work verse 25 not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, connect that to the word consider in verse 24, exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We are stirring each other up unto love and to good works by getting together in fellowship and in community and in worship as a local body of believers. And we are committed to, in verse 25, the idea of forsaking is the idea of just abandoning something. I am going to turn my back on this, never to return again. Now, can I say this, especially if you're with us online right now? The timing of this message is a little off, by my perspective, okay? It seems like in, a, in the midst of a COVID situation where people are staying home for different reasons, that maybe this wouldn't be the most appropriate study to have this morning. And so I would say this before we get into the rest of this text. This is not, this is not, and please, for crying out loud, don't take this out of context. This is not an implication that some are, are staying home for illegitimate reasons. The idea here in verse number 25 is not forsaking, not making a permanent decision to abandon the church altogether, never to return. Some need to stay home. Some right now are home because they need to be. We understand that. And I hope now that we're, what, a year into this crazy thing, that you understand that's not where we're coming from, is to guilt people. But I am going to tell you that some can come to church and be just as absent as somebody that's online because they think that going to the church is the end game. And that's not it. So we are not, I am not, 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 referring to the need to stay home for medical reasons. If you want to take something out of context, take that statement, because we're not here to guilt people. But we are stirring each other up by coming together. 
We are committing to not abandoning this practice. And so the writer of Hebrews has to make this statement, which implies that some had abandoned. He wouldn't tell people to stop forsaking if there weren't some that were forsaking. Somebody was abandoning the church. I cannot tell you the number of times people make a statement regarding church that sounds something like this. I used to, and then fill in the blank with what they used to do at church. When I grew up, I, and then fill in the blank, I'd love to come back, but I'm going to make some rapid-fired statements in just a moment about abandoning the church for us in the room and for those online. And, And again, we must not take this the wrong way. Those in the text who had forsaken the assembling at church, at least it appears, had committed to total abandonment. So, I would love to create a poll and ask your opinions, and if you have some, you're welcome to send them to me because I'm immensely curious. Why do we abandon the church then? What happens? Why does it seem like people do forsake the coming together that God has expected us to do. Why? Can I, can I give you, this is not original with me. It's a recent um, research that was performed by Lifeway, and they say this. And, and Now listen, um, if this steps on a toe, again, the intention, I, I have to repeat this so many times in case you're just coming back to me. The intention is not to guilt people. I'm trying to do what verse 24 says, to provoke. So why do people stay home? Why do they just go to church even and not be involved in the ministry? Here's number one they found. The answer is this. They just got out of the habit. There was no big crisis. There was no argument. There was no church split. They just stopped. And instead of developing the discipline of coming to church, the discipline of staying home had been mastered. Number two, they they left after graduating high school, and this happens constantly. Number three, they disagree with the institution of the church because anything that is organized or institutionalized must inherently be evil. Listen, even though Christians have been encouraged by Scripture too and have been practicing the corporate gathering of a local body of believers, some believe that that institution of the church has negative connotations. Therefore, we'll just stay home. We'll sit this one out. Number four, they were hurt at church. Um, listen, many, many people will lose sight of the ultimate purpose of the church because they cannot see past the hurt that was caused to them in the places like this. That's where forgiveness last week is so important. That's where burden bearing is so important. We don't come together primarily for each other, but for worship and serving our God. But being family has benefits, but it also has its liabilities, does it not? Sometimes we hurt each other. So instead of seeking forgiveness or providing forgiveness, we just stay home. Number five, they say that some abandoned church because they couldn't find a church to meet their needs. It's a mentality that thinks the purpose of the church is what I can get out of it. Can I, can I show you this in our text in Hebrews 10? The emphasis isn't on what I can get out of church. Do you see that? Show me one word in verse 24 and verse 25 that would highlight the thought that we come to church based on what I can get out of it. Now, granted, I hope that you grow. I hope that you learn. That would be our our prayer. But this mentality thinks that I, I come just to see what I can get out of it. That's not the emphasis of our text. The emphasis is, what can I invest? 
How can I provoke somebody? How can I encourage somebody to love or to good works? What can I put into what God's already doing? Number six, they never felt connected. Now, over the years, I have heard this, and I'm sure many of you have as well. We've heard this a lot. Um, can, I, can I tell you, this is a shameless commercial. One of the ways that you can get connected in this church is by going to Sunday school. Our small groups, where we can talk, where we can have conversation, where you can get to know people. We don't have a Valentine's banquet for the sake of having something else to do and putting something on the calendar. It's a chance to come together and to get to know people and to remove the excuse of why I don't know them or I have never talked to them, where we are intentionally providing opportunities. That is a philosophy built into what we do. Number seven, I'm going to say this one and I'm going to move on. But people abandoned church because they never gave financially. Isn't that a weird thought? Where your treasure is, what's the rest of the scripture say? That will your heart be also. Number eight, they left when the pastor leaves and the loyalties are attached to the wrong direction. Um, again, I'll be brutally honest, a church is not built on a personality. If you're looking for perfection, you're looking the wrong direction, lift your eyes just a little higher than they are right now. And the last one, they moved to a different city, never to return to, to church. That's why we invest in new movement ministries, why we're trying to unroll that so that we can make contact with the hundred and some odd people that moved to Norwood in the past month. Consider this. You know what's amazing about Hebrews chapter 10? Not just that there's an encouragement. This is almost like preaching to the choir. Why, why are you telling me about coming to church? I'm in church. doesn't make any sense. Well, look. What's amazing about verse 24 and 25 is the context that the challenge um, is being presented in. Christians, as they were reading this book, Christians were being persecuted and put to death because of their faith. By coming together in corporate worship, if they were to be discovered, it could have been a life sentence on them. And so they had a, they had a high premium placed on the importance of coming together, and also they had a major out to not coming together because they don't want to die. Makes sense, right? I mean, I, that's logical, if nothing else. I am going to abandon coming together to a local body of believers because there is a potential that I might lose my life if I do so. And what does the writer of Hebrews say? That's the backdrop of verse 24. Encourage each other, provoke each other in love and into good works to come together. We know the sacrifice might be great. We know that there is, a, there is an ultimate price that might be there to be paid, but don't abandon the coming together as a body of believers. And when you think about it that way, it kind of takes our mediocre excuses and it kind of shoves them off to the side. So in verse 25, we keep gathering as the church until God gathers us home. Adrian Rogers says this. Some people go to church three times in their lives. When they're born, when they're married, and when they die. When they're hatched, when they're matched, and when they're dispatched. He says, hold on, it's not done yet. <laughs> the first time, they throw water. The second time, rice. And the third time, dirt. 
Listen to me. The church, the church, not the buildings, not the physical piece of property, those of us that know Christ as our Savior, who are locally assembling ourselves together as believers, the church is the only thing in God's Word to which He promises to build. The church is what God promises that the gates of hell will not be victorious against. The church is where we receive edification and where we are mobilized to evangelize the world. The church is the place where our gifts are supposed to be exercised. The church are where believers are strengthened to face the upcoming week. Right here is where the gospel is to be preached. Sitting next to you is the bride of Christ that you, imagine this, will spend eternity together, so we might as well figure out how to get along now. Right here in the book of Acts is the unity to reach its community for the kingdom through the church. The church is family, and we laugh together, we cry together, we serve together, we give together, and we love together. And it is not a guilt trip to try to grow in attendance of a church. I'm not concerned about a number on the back of a bulletin. I am immensely concerned about the biblical mandate to provoke each other to love and to good works by getting together. Now, isn't it amazing? The person who benefits the most from coming together is us. You'll be encouraged, I hope. You'll be edified. You'll be equipped as we exalt the name of the Lord together. Consider yourself, consider one another to provoke, to sharpen each other unto love and to good works by coming together. That is the primary means of sharpening each other because, listen, it's hard to sharpen two pieces of iron when they're separated. So we come together. We come together to love God. We come together to love people. And we come together to serve the world. Hey, can I encourage you this morning? I know you're here. I know it seems a little backward to be studying such an important section of Scripture. I'll tell you this, I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful for the Spirit. I'm thankful for the involvement of this church. But folks, we are not done. We have an amazing mission that God has entrusted to us to reach by any means possible a community and a world for the gospel. And if we are still debating what we're going to do on Sunday morning, I'm going to tell you this. If that is the consideration that we have, we might as well forget the consideration of reaching a world for Christ. We can't figure out where we're going to be when the time comes on a Sunday. Now again, hear me out. This is not to say there are not health reasons to say. I told you this, when I was praying through this and, and studying through this, I thought, okay, maybe this isn't the time to talk about such a matter. And if you're online right now, this is not a guilt trip. Okay? Look at the person next to you and say, that's not a guilt trip. And I was trying to wake you up as well. This is not a guilt trip. There are reasons to stay home at times. But what is the encouragement? We are going to encourage, I'm going to encourage Olivia and, and Eli and Bob and Bill and, and, the, and, the, and the Hoyts. I'm going to do the best that I can to encourage each other to love and to good works. 
So stop going to church. Let's find ways that we can continue to serve together. Oh, but it's COVID. I get that. We're going to have to get creative. We're going to have to figure out ways to do this. There are ways to reach people for Christ. We found ways to get our groceries, did we not? We've got to figure out a way to continue provoking each other to love into good works. Are you with me? That's, that's the purpose of the church. Not a place to go on Sunday mornings, but a place to grow together, to worship, to serve, and to give, and to love each other. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for those that are here today. God, I am, I am confident that they are here simply because they have a desire to worship, to hear from you and your word. And God, I pray that that has been accomplished today. Lord, I, I pray that we would walk out of here encouraged and, and, and edified and, and maybe even equipped and, and reminded of our opportunity that we have to love others through good works. Lord, we understand that the law and the keeping of good works, that doesn't save us. That doesn't provide any forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ that accomplishes all that. But God, one thing we need to be reminded of right now, especially as we continue, Lord, it's, it's gut-wrenching and heartbreaking to watch a church building have a for sale sign and what that must communicate to a lost and a, a, a dying world who will spend eternity separated from you when they see for sale signs dropped in the front yards of churches. God, may we be reminded today that the church is still alive and doing just fine and that we can still be used by you in an amazing way as we continue to submit ourselves to your leadership. We, we seek after your guidance. And God, that we would just continue to come together week in and week out and bring as many people with us as possible so that they too can sit under the gospel of Christ, hear about the sacrifice that was made, and place their faith in him for their salvation. God, I am so thankful for what you're doing here. Lord, I, I, I know that the, the sentiment is shared. Lord, we, we love the people that are sitting in this room and that are online with us right now. But God, I pray, and maybe this is the encouragement that we need, I pray that we would stop going to church. And Father, we would start being the church. That we would continue to encourage each other, to love on each other, to laugh together, to cry together, and to reach our community and the world with the gospel of Christ. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed right now, listen. I just have a question for you. You know, I made that statement, and it is absolutely true. The, the church is, is alive and doing just fine because you and I are here. I, I am so thankful to be a part of a church that has a heart to reach out and to reach its community and to love on people. To the glory of God, I'm thankful for that. But can I tell you that the truth that there are strength in numbers is absolutely true. As we walk out of this place this morning, it'll be an exiting of, a, of a, a massive army for the cause of Christ. And I pray this morning has been an encouragement to you that you can go to somebody this week and provoke them to love and to good works. If you see somebody that's not, or you see a, a seat that would normally be filled by somebody, then you reach out to them and you would, you would sharpen them, you would provoke them, consider them. 
Just let them know that they're loved and that they're missed. Folks, listen to me. Some of us have been going to church for a long time. The outline of our bodies are impressed permanently in that pew. Maybe it's time for us to begin to serve together more. Find some way that God can stretch us to use us in a different way. Because again, this is the means that God has called us to serve together through the local church. This is the means by which God has promised to add to it, give us opportunities to use our gifts together. This is the way that God has provided for us to have eternal impact on our community. So I hope that you've been encouraged and challenged today. You know, this morning, maybe, um, maybe you realize that you need to get involved in the church. Maybe you've been praying about um, involvement at Ashland, and, and you realize the first step might be to, to join and get involved. Well, then I would encourage you to, to just come and talk. How do you do that? Just come and talk to me. Let me know. Talk to my wife. We would love nothing more than to welcome you into our family. But folks, listen, the church is alive and it's well because we serve a God who is alive and well. So would you pray to, with me to that end? Father, we thank you for the fact that we serve a risen Savior, that, Father, we have a God who loves us, who has a desire to continue to use us in this life. God, I pray that we would never become satisfied with our walk with you personally, or with our involvement through the local church to reach a community for Christ. God, we can, we can come up with a lot of excuses as why not to come together. But when we think about what the sacrifice was to those people who are reading this in the book of Hebrews, all of a sudden our excuses don't hold so much water. So God, I pray that we would never catch ourselves abandoning or forsaking the coming together that, God, instead, you would continue to build your church here, not for the sake of a kingdom here at this piece of property, but for the sake of your kingdom eternally. It's a much bigger picture. God, we want you to get the thanks and the glory for it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Church, would you say it with me? Amen. I um, grew up in Florida, but my grandparents were from Atlanta. Hey, before you close your browser and you head off to the rest of your day, I wanted to take just a minute and say thank you for stopping by and worshiping with us here at Ashland. We know there's a lot of reasons as to why people are staying home and are unable to attend in-person services, and our desire is not to guilt you for that decision. But I am thankful for live stream options to be able to worship with you, study God's word together, and to grow together. But let me encourage you to do this. At your earliest possible time, make sure to get back into in-person services. That may be next week or that might be several weeks from now. Whenever it is, be sure to get connected to a local church. But if this is your first time at Ashland or maybe it's been a while since you've worshiped with us, I wanna ask you just to take a minute right after you close this window, open up a new one and go to ashlandavenue.org. Especially if you're visiting with us today, right when you open up that website, right at the top of the screen will be a, a marquee that says a digital connect card. 
Would you click on that and just take a minute and provide for us your contact information so we can reach out to you and make ourselves available to you. I promise you we will not bombard you with emails that you're not interested in, but it'll provide us a record of your attendance and also open a line of communication so that if there's any way that we can serve you in the future, we might be able to find out about that method through email. On that website also are some archive studies in case you're looking for other opportunities to continue studying. If you are willing to give and you would like to worship through giving, we have an online option to give as well. All of this and more at ashlandavenue.org. But listen, we are here to pray for and to serve your family any way that you see necessary. So feel free to reach out to us at any point through the website, make contact with us and let us know what we can do for you.